It's time to listen to my favorite podcast, sis. Am I tripping? Is it me? Am I the villain? Uh, maybe, baby, but don't hit the ceiling. We about healing, so put your two cents in when your homegirl asks, am I tripping? Okay, you guys, so this is the part of the show where we go into why we're really here. So my question to y'all this week is, sis, am I tripping? Or do we need to have more conversations regarding suicide? So with me today, I have Deontay Miller, who is a licensed family therapist. And I have uh, author and poet, Kevin Ockletree, who has released one book here with Lexicon. And we are putting the final touches on his next book, Thoughts of Suicide, which is what brought forth the reason to have this conversation today. So for those of you guys who are unfamiliar with Calvin's story, Calvin is a poet. And in this book, he actually takes us through his thoughts of suicide that he wrote while in a mental institution. So Calvin, can you give us a little bit more of how that book came to pass and how we got here to be able to even talk about this topic? Yes. Um, so that was a very, very, very dark time of my life and I was in a car accident. So uh, this is the backstory. I'll make it very, very quick. Um, I was driving in my Challenger. It was the first Challenger I had ever bought myself. I was proud of it, but I had just got broken up with. Um, everything was, was going haywire. I was uh, fighting a, a charge um, in court at the time. And things were just falling apart around me. And I was just like, yo, I think it would just be easier if I just wasn't here. Because everything from my day to day and, and hour to hour, and at that point, minutes to seconds on seconds, it was just like, it's not worth it anymore. Everything's falling apart. So I decided to go to a venue, get drunk with some friends and say I was okay to drive. And when I was on the back roads from Smyrna, Tennessee, driving down the back roads, it started raining. And I was like, oh, wow, now it's raining. And, I, and something about... And I know it will sound crazy, but a calm came over me and was just like, you know what? Just floor it. And whichever way the car goes or wherever it leads, you're comfortable with this feeling. And that was the most peaceful time in a, in an unpeaceful moment, if that makes sense. Everything, there was no noise in my head. There, there was no feeling. It, it was just, it felt right, even though it was the wrong thing to do. And I ended up totaling my challenger. Um, and if it wasn't for the property that I hit, and I hit their sign on their property and they had their house next to it. It was um, a, a older white male who, who saved my life that day. He was able to figure out a way to wake me up while I was stuck, while my challenger was upside down um, in this ditch area. And the car was starting to fill up with water because that in that little creek section, you know, it was going to get subdued in water. Um, so he was able to get me conscious. I didn't know what had happened. Um, I was I was out of it, um, not coherent at all. But by the time he had radioed in the the fire trucks and the police officers, the ambulance, they came and they brought the jaws of life. I got to experience with that, the sound and just the commotion that it takes. And they were able to remove me uh, from the challenger. Two things that they said to save my life was the farmer and the actual structure of the Challenger. American made, but the way the front of it is built, 
that didn't allow it to uh, push further into the ditch because of this it being hard metal. Uh, it, it basically the frame of the Challenger saved my life. You know, um, like the basics of it of the frame saved my life. So it was the car, um, which was ironic, and it was uh, the farmer um, who I kept in touch with for a couple years after that. But shortly um, after, of course, I was cuffed in the hospital. They they ran and saw my blood alcohol level. Now that that brought on another charge that I was already uh, fighting. You know, have to fight for with now. And they was like, he's not, um, he's, he's not fit. You know, he's not mentally there. They have went through my phone, saw text messages. Um, and I got mad at a lot of people because they end up sending in text messages conversations as well. Um, to protect me now, I understand that, but I was just angry at everybody in that moment. And it, and then I got put into Skyline Medical Facility, um, in Tennessee and once I was in there, I said, I'm not supposed to be in here. Okay, like these other people are supposed to be in here. I'm not. I had a moment. I had a moment and mm-hmm. I, I know I messed up, but y'all got me in here with these people. There's no way that I, sh- I, I get it. I get it. And, um, but day by day by day, they gave us this little, these little black books. And that's where, uh, thoughts of suicide came to existence. Um, instead of paying attention some days, I would just write short poems. Um, and then what I found myself doing is that even though I was ignoring the instructor, I would find taking the practices that they were giving us inside of the classes, but I'm writing according to the practices. So either way, I never knew why he didn't bother me because we had to turn our black books in at the end of the sessions. But he never bothered me because he saw through my writings that I was practicing what he was teaching. So clearly, you know, I was hearing him. But I, you know, I thought I was just getting out the way, like, oh, I'm going to just ski through this, right, go back right. to my room and I'm good. Right. And um, that's how the book started to uh, come to, uh, you know, be, be created. And it was day by day, literally writing and not knowing that I'm learning from the practices that he was teaching. It's almost like a subconscious, subconscious thing. Wow. I love how, because now hearing that story, I understand when we got to like the technical side of putting your book together, why it having that leather feel, why it having, you know, being a black book, why, you know, um, because like one thing you guys will see when the book comes out is that there's not regular pages down at the bottom. Um, You actually wrote like you wanted those days and that's exactly how your book was. So now hearing that story, I can understand why you were so technical with how you wanted this book to be perceived. So yes. did you say how old you were at that time? Like when you, when this happened? Uh, I believe that I was 24, 25. Yes, actually that's correct. Uh, 24 turning 25. And was that your first time? coming face to face with that peaceful decision of suicide? Uh, yes, with putting it into action, yes. But I had already had the thoughts. Um, uh, I had already, I had already, it, 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 and I, now that I'm able to understand where it all came from, these were things that were probably starting to be brewing up from when I was a kid, uh, from certain things that I felt from my parents, the feeling of needing to be, the, the fact that I didn't feel accepted by my parents in the household or nothing that I did was good enough. Mm-hmm. I always fought to seek out acceptance from others uh, around me or organizations uh, joining. You know, that's why I, 
that's why I when I really really went and unpacked it all, that's why I went and joined my fraternity in college. That's why I joined two, a business fraternity there. That's why I made sure I was active in the NAACP. That's why I made sure I wanted to be a part of something and to feel accepted. So I always seeked acceptance. And um, so I know that the thoughts leading up to that were the most dangerous. The things that I experienced, those were the most dangerous and threatening things to me as a person. Um, and it ended up attacking me to where I got to that point. Um, and now that I've, you know, I've had those, I have had two suicide attempts, but for me, it was like, what brought me up to those events to me that were the most dangerous and how can I, you know, get help for, seek out advice and how can I deter my way away from having to get to that point or having to experience the things that I'm feeling, uh, that will lead me up to those actions. Wow. I'm glad you said that because like with me raising two boys, um, you know, I'm a single mom, I'm raising two boys. And I know in our community, we have a tendency that, you know, we tell guys that, you know what I'm saying? Like you aren't supposed to cry and which isn't fair. You guys feel the exact same feelings and emotions that we do. Um, so I know like in our community, Sometimes if you share something that's uncomfortable, one thing we like to do is say, oh, that person's looking for attention, right? So Deontay, for moms or parents that are watching this and listening to this and hearing this, um, let's say we did get a 12-year-old kid who's comfortable sharing, hey, I'm having these crazy thoughts. How mm -hmm. should we be handling that? Well, the first thing and most importantly thing is take it serious. Right. Don't just be dismissive of your child when they say things, because you're right. Sometimes when children are young, we tend to dismiss what they're feeling because we're like, oh, they just want some attention, as you stated. But that baby is learning to internalize things. Right. And a lot of things are being compartmented. like men, especially black boys, learn how to compartmentalize very, very young, unintentionally. So when they're trying to be expressive and saying, hey, I'm not okay, even if it's not them verbally saying I'm not okay, whether it's behaviorally or they're just, they're doing things because they're saying, hey, I need him. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to articulate that. And sometimes we as parents, because of our insecurities, we'll be dismissive because we don't want our baby to be looked at as saying, oh, well, there's something wrong with my child. My child isn't crazy. Mm -hmm. So guess what we are gonna do? We're going to either push it under the rug or we're going to be very dismissive. Or my favorite one is we just going to pray over it. You know, we're just going to mm -hmm. pray about it. Right. And and not to say that prayer isn't important because it is. But here's the thing, even not to get off track. Jesus was a counselor. Yeah. Right. And so right. as parents getting to that point, going back to your question, do not dismiss anything that your child is saying, doing or telling you. Even if it makes you uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. You want them to feel safe enough to say, mom, this is what's going on. Dad, this is what's going on. And like he said, and to be acceptive to that, right? Because the one time you reject it, they compartmentalize, they clam up and guess what? Now they're gonna learn how to deal with it the wrong way and probably from external factors, right? Wow. Which could lead to a negative kind of, cycle of behavior interactions all these different things and now you have a 24 25 year old man who has pretty much had all of this dysfunction and trauma that they've kind of kept this entire time and now they want to commit suicide 
Yeah. All because it started at the age of, like he said, 11, 10, 12. I was never heard. I was never understood. You never listened. Right? Wow. That's heavy because it's just like, as a society, we just do that. And I want to also add to the conversation that I met Deontay at church, right? So when you mentioned that part, it's a big thing. Um, Deontay actually had a um, true group in his home with his lovely wife and their beautiful children. Um, and so that just goes to show that, yes, you, you, you need Jesus and a therapist. There's nothing wrong with having both. Um, Cause like you said, Jesus was a counselor. So I love that. So going back to you, um, Calvin, right? So you had this attempt. That was the first one. Mm-hmm. What happened in between that, first attempt and realizing like you you got saved in terms of somebody saved your life um, and maybe trying to now operate in a space where people know that you mentally got to that place. Were people receptive of what you were dealing with? Were they more willing to hear you when they realized the lengths you were going to, to deal with your trauma? Well, let me say some facts. Let me say some facts about that. I, if they were, I don't even think I was in the right mental place to even receive it uh, or to even be at that moment after the attempt was done and I was going through what I was going through. I was trying to wrap my mind around myself. I didn't. It was almost just like, OK, I'm still here. You know, like like, man, like I like wh- what am I supposed to be doing with my life now that I'm still he- now that I'm still here, you know, uh so, but I do remember I felt alone because my mom really couldn't be there for me at the time. And she didn't put the effort in to come and um, visit. Um, my stepdad showed up for, he showed up one day for four hours. He talked to me outside where we were allowed to walk around and talk. And then he had to get back on the road because they were living in North Carolina at the time. Uh Nobody came to visit. Um, and when I got released, it was everybody were hands on with just making sure that I was protected from myself. But nobody was really asking me how I was really feeling on the inside. So then I kind of felt like I said, I felt alone. So no, to answer your question, I, I don't even think it made me feel like they didn't care. But I feel like they were probably so caught up with caring from their standpoint of what they thought caring was, that the fact is just protecting me and making sure there was nothing that would be harming, that either I was medicated and that everything that they, that the doctors and the facility told them they need to do, they, I feel like that's where their care came from. Um, and I internalized that negatively from them um, because it was just like, okay, y'all listen to what the doctors are saying, but are you listening to what I'm feeling? Um, so yeah, there were people present. <laughs> there, there were people present and active, but I felt so alone in that and so small, you know? I felt mm-hmm. so small and coming out of a situation when I didn't want to be here anymore, being thrown into a smaller box made it worse. Mm-hmm. You know, just to put it in layman terms, like it just made it feel worse. Um, and I felt suffocated, uh, for sure. Mm. So then Deontay, with your experience, and thank you for sharing that, Calvin, um, with your experience, 
how do you think someone should handle that, right? Like if a parent, a spouse, a friend, you know, their friend goes through a situation similar to Calvin's, how should we best support someone? Yeah. When you, and that's, and that's a good question because typically as parents, most parents, um, they go into survival mode, right? Because they've never experienced that. So they're just doing everything that they can. Like he said, they were, he was medicated, trying to make sure he's protecting himself and not really hearing or getting to the core at what caused that, right? And so as parents, if you're experiencing that, um, the main thing is you need to get them some therapy, right? That's the first thing, right? If they're not a physical harm to themselves, right? Like, Obviously, you want to have a safety plan to prevent them from actually completing the suicide. But that's only half of it. Right? You have to get to the root core of what triggered what's going on inside emotionally that's pushing them into this lane of I don't want to live. Right? That's significant for someone to tell you that they don't want to live. You can't just continue to be robotic and say, well, I'm going to just do everything the doctor said and completely negate the emotional aspect of it, which is really where you'll find where the core of this lies, right? Yeah. He says some really, some really important yet powerful things. Like he said, I felt like I was in a smaller box. It goes back to that childhood. It's triggering because you're like, once again, I'm misunderstood. No one is listening, right? You're just kind of, unfortunately, stereotyping me <laughs> as your own child. And I'm here saying to you, hey, that's not what I need. That's not what I need. I don't need the doctor. I don't need to be medicated. Guess what? I want to feel valued. I want to be heard. I want to be missed. I want to be understood. Right. I want you to take an interest in me, what I feel. And that's hard for a black boy. It's hard for black kids, period. But for a man, like you said in the beginning, it's hard because we're not programmed that way young. We're programmed to be tough, to be strong, to if we show vulnerability, technically it's a sign of weakness. Right. And so I can't be open. So you push me into isolation and in isolation, the enemy can play on my mind, can play on my heart, can make me believe lies about myself. And I start to believe that stuff. And if I have no one there to counteract that by affirming me, guess what? I'm going to grow up and believe everything about myself negatively, looking at myself through those negative core values. Wow. Those core values are important because they're established in childhood. Yeah. A lot of people think that they're, they become adults and they develop these. They are established in childhood and they have negative consequences. Mm. Oh. Right. I'll give you an example. If you grow up in a, in a situation where, you had parents that rejected you. You felt like they abandoned you, never listened. Well, guess what? You'll internalize that and start feeling like you're not good enough, kind of like Calvin said. Those are negative core beliefs that you have. The consequences of that is you find yourself in relationships where you don't trust people. Then you overextend yourself in relationships just to feel accepted, even if that relationship is toxic, right? Mm -hmm. Then that creates anxiety depression, low self-esteem, ultimately leading to what? Suicide. All from a core belief that was planted when you were six, seven years old, that no one never came to challenge. He's telling the truth. Right. It's so good to hear you say all of this. And so because you know and have the knowledge that you have on both sides, right? 
through your studies in school and through having your relationship with God. Have you personally ever experienced any thoughts of suicide on your own or? So, yes. So I'll tell you this. So, um, and I, I share this sometimes with, with my clients. Um, I call it self of the therapist if it's warranted to share. Right. And before I even thought about being a therapist, um, I battled depression for two years and no one never knew it. No one never knew it because of what I'm saying right now. I was the person in my family where I had to be strong. Um, I had to just tell myself that I'll be okay. I was afraid of making mistakes. I had to succeed. I had to do all these expectations as a black man that you got to live up to. And I couldn't share that stuff because mom and dad might not necessarily understand that. Right. And so I battled depression for two years. And in that time frame, I thought about my value. Maybe it's easier to just not be here. I just want to quit. Right. Quit sounded better than saying, yeah, maybe I don't want to live. Right. That's a way of just dancing around the obvious. I'm sure you can relate, Calvin. You try yeah. to rationalize in your mind. And what helped me was, of course, my relationship with God. But I started going to therapy. Mm-hmm. I took that step for myself and said, guess what? I'm going to be the I don't know, the curse breaker or whatever you want to call it in my family. But I'm going to be the one that's going to be the black sheep here. And I'm going to go get help. Yeah. And in getting help. That's what helped me and pushed me to become a therapist. But to your point, yes, I battled depression. I suffered in silence like a lot of men do. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, too. So then you have, because I'll explain an issue that I've had with therapy and my mental health. This has just been my personal thing. I could be on the verge of a mental breakdown. But because I know that as a therapist, you have an obligation, right, to report if something happens, sometimes you're a little fr- afraid to tell your therapist, like, hey, I'm having these thoughts. My, my brain goes here. Sometimes I thought it's easier to quit. And so even though you guys exist to help us go through those thoughts, if you're somebody like myself who's afraid of admitting that to you because I don't want you to Baker's Act me or anything like that, what could you offer to someone or, you know, what words of advice could you give to someone who may think that same way? That, hey, if I tell my therapist the truth, they're going to send me to, you know, a mental institution. Well, let's disarm that narrative or that that thought, because that's not how it works. So just so you're armed with it, right? Say for I want my clients to tell me that. So let's say you and I are having a session and you're coming in. You say, hey, listen, I'm hurting myself. Okay, boom, we're stopping session right now. Right. We're not going into any theories because now I'm going to assess you to see what type of risk you're at of really hurting yourself. Hey, how often are you having these thoughts? Is this what is the, what triggering these thoughts, right? And then I'm going to assess whether or not you do need that type of care. Because just because you say I have a thought of suicide or that doesn't mean you're going to go and leave here and commit it. That's not how that works. And that doesn't mean that a therapist should have you admit it either. Right. You have to use, obviously, discretion, your education. You got to do all of that. But if you're having thoughts, I would encourage you to share that with your therapist, because then they can start exploring. Well, where are these thoughts coming from? Right. Mm -hmm. If you're if because nine times out of ten, 
when you start asking people that says things like that direct, like, hey, do you want to kill yourself? It snaps them out of it. And they say, well, no, 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 that's not what I really meant. What I meant was I'm having a hard time. And sometimes I think about would it be easier if I wasn't here, but I don't want to kill myself. Right. And so I would encourage you to share that with your therapist, especially if you have rapport with them, Mm -hmm. because they're there to help guide you through that. And I would trust and pray that they're equipped enough to know if you need a higher level of care. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Because listen, that was always a thing for me. Like, I'll tell you what I feel comfortable, but you're not really getting the help if you do it that way. So I like that you mentioned that. That's really good. So personally for myself, I have lost friends to suicide. I have friends that have lost children. I have friends that have lost parents to suicide. Um, What do you think is the most important thing if someone knows that someone is dealing with this, right? And maybe we're not wanting to stay on top of them. Maybe we're wanting to not box them in. Um, What do you think with your advice or your experience are some things that we could at least be looking out for if we see something in someone? Like if we notice that they're depressed and we know that they've been suicidal, what are some things that we may want to look out for? Um, Could you share some of those things? Well, yeah, of course. Obviously, you want to you're going to pay attention to like external things like their behavior, their mood, their things like that. Right. Things that you can. I, I call it quantify. I can speak directly to that. But you always have to approach it from a space of curiosity, too, and with urgency. Like, again, I can't say this enough. Don't dismiss those thoughts or those comments or anything that you are um, observing. Right. Ask questions, approach it. And because how you approach those situations, because if you handle it, wrong, you can push them further into dysfunction. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times parents will accuse indirectly as opposed to saying, hey, what do you need? What's going on? Where are you? What do you need right now? Right. You want to create an environment where they feel safe, because if they're contemplating suicide, emotionally, they aren't safe. They don't feel that safety net. Right. And so usually in suicide, you just want to know somebody. They just want to know somebody care. Like I'm loved. Someone cares about me. Right. And so you want to create that environment where you're looking to create safety for them. Right. And then, of course, you don't want you want to be proactive. Hey, let's go talk to someone. Let's get you. I don't know what to do here. And it's okay for you to tell them that I don't know what to give you or what you need, but I can help get you or we can help get you the help that you need you gotta you just gotta tell mommy you gotta tell dad you know you gotta talk to me that creates that space of okay i'm safe here yeah but if it's approached with you good or you know ain't nothing wrong with you know how that thing we go into Mm -hmm. guess what you'll find yourself on the other side of that where you're dealing with the tragedy of potentially a suicide yeah the um uh, just from someone that's in that situation there, and I really just going to shout out Marina here, my other half. Uh, if she catches me sleeping too much, or or I'm too quiet, or she sees me in my head, mm-hmm. um, or you know I'm not calling and talking to the people I normally talk to often, or I'm shutting down, um, or I'm going into she calls it my shell. She's like, well, no, nah, 
let's go to the beach or nah, let's go like, you know, cause, uh, or, or just to bring me out of whatever I'm feeling, you know, now I believe that may take time. Like, like, like he was saying, like, you have to watch the cues. And if you don't know that person and how they are to watch those cues then you can, you know, m misstep somewhere and then it's fatal. But, um, again, the, he already said it, but answers the question hundred percent. Well, let's get you to someone that understands this. Or let's go together and just offering up being there. You know, I'm, I'm just telling you what's helped me in those situations. Uh, just sitting with me like we don't got to talk, you know, like just just sit here. We we in the, and this is true. This, I'm laughing because this is real. We have said in our closet. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but in our closet, no lights on, just sitting there. And we're just like holding each other. And for me, that was everything mm -hmm. it was everything and it was just like wow like because in the reason why how we ended up in the closet was just because i was sitting on the floor and it just fell into a comfortable space you know it was wow. just laying there intertwined physical touch knowing that that's my my rock too you know wow. and you she didn't have to say anything you know just sometimes being there is is a lot and it does a lot more than just if you're talking or physically doing anything um, that's what's helped me in my situations. Um, and, and then being able, but I feel like also as a person, if you can get to where you're emotional, intelligent enough to, uh, catch your own triggers and you, that's where the real power comes in because having to uplift myself when I'm seeing it coming, but you're already feeling it come over yourself. And, 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 you know, Marina's not there. You know, I don't have my daughter to look in my eyes to tell me to keep going without her even telling me that my son's at school. I'm by myself. That's where the finding that power and strength to pull yourself up out of that alone with nobody being there, you being your own self-satisfaction. That to me was the biggest thing I had to learn. And honestly, truthfully, I don't know how I taught myself that. I'll be honest. It, I think I got tired of being tired of wanting to give up. Mm. And that's what pushed me to say, okay, pull yourself up out of bootstraps, but not in a negative sense, just in some survival, but healthy survival tips. That's what I had to tell myself. Yeah. That's good, man. No, that's really good. Because mm. it's like, it's really unfair that we do this to y'all and just say, no crying, figure it out. Right. We come to y'all just for solutions and and then just look at y'all like y'all are crazy when you're 30 years old, 40 years old, dealing with these feelings and emotions that you've suppressed all your life, essentially. Yeah, it's crazy. It's a double edged sword, Katie. It's a very slippery slope because I still put some accountability on us as men, too, though. Right. Yes. Because it's our responsibility. You guys are mind readers. And so it's our job, even though we weren't necessarily taught, it's still our job to find the courage, right? Like he said, whatever way you have to do that. And a lot of that comes with establishing your identity to say, hey, listen, I'm not okay. And I gotta be okay, be completely comfortable saying that no matter how people perceive me, no matter if they judge me, regardless of the fact, I gotta be okay for Deontay or I have to be okay for Calvin or even Katie. Yeah. Because there were people that deflect those negative connotations on you. That's their insecurities about the situation. That's all. 
-hmm. A lot of times their insecurities come out and you saying I'm not okay may potentially highlight some things in their own life that they're not ready to face. Think about how our parents react to when our kids go through things. It's because kind of opening this can of worms might create some accountability in this that I'm not ready to face to say, I didn't listen or do what I needed to do regarding my child when they needed me most. And that's not to say that they're bad parents. It's just to say, I missed the mark here. Yeah. Wow. He's not he's not wrong. He's not wrong. Right. He's not wrong. And I'm he's not wrong because literally when I was in the mental institution, my it, my mom was in no rush or in no quick to be there or to even talk. She she hit me up one time, right? Oh, he's just getting through something. But then when I got hurt in the military, she was like, Oh my gosh, there's so much I didn't get right with him. Oh my gosh. If he, if he doesn't wake up from out of come, like, Oh man, I, baby, I love you. I love you. And I'm like, come on. Like when I need, when I needed you there and I needed you to have that moment with me when I was struggling with that. And it was almost like she belittled what it was. And I'm like, you could have lost me then. But when something happens to me outside of myself of something that I'm, it's my duty to do and I get hurt. You're concerned, and that that broke me in a in a, in a sense of its, of itself. You know mm-hmm. that she was more concerned about my duty uh, and my job that I signed up for, and but it, it's you know instead of being there for me when I was truly in need. I, that's that yeah that brother right there said it right <laughs> right on. <laughs> <laughs> Man, so then. So I feel like there's a lot of layers to uncover in all of this. Mm-hmm. So then, because right now there's not a lot of emphasis on mental health, right? Some mm-hmm. insurances don't even cover people to have a therapist. So to the person who may say, you know what, I do need help, but I can't afford it right now. What would you, what advice would you give them? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the, the help, that's out there. It's expanded some. So, I mean, obviously you have things like, you know, Medicaid and different things like that. People have EAP through their jobs. That's free. Mm -hmm. Um, And usually nowadays, because mental health is such, is becoming such a big thing post COVID um, EAP, like is continuous with most companies. So like they might give you so many sessions for free. And then once those six sessions expire, you contact your provider at your job. And they'll give you another six, right? And so I, I've done that. Clients do that all the time. People, matter of fact, I've used that before just because it's free. Like, why not? Right? But there's so many different resources out there, and it's too many to name. But I would even start there. Then there's um, different things or different um, websites you could go to, um, Psychology Today, different things like that, where you have access to these things. Um, in terms of getting the help that you need, um, I would advocate for it and tell people, like, don't let that stop you either. You know, that whole thing of, oh, well, I don't have insurance. I can't listen. There's programs. There's things out there to help you get what you need in terms of from a mental capacity. Because if we didn't pay attention to it prior to COVID, we definitely paying attention to it now. Right. I mean, I think COVID is stopped everything and all that stuff that we dealt with in passing it became came to the forefront. Now, now you got is time. And a lot of people didn't like what they saw. They didn't like what they felt. 
And for some, unfortunately, it was overwhelming. Do you mm -hmm. know that 1.2 million people attempted suicide in 2020? 45,000 people actually committed suicide in the U.S. in 2020 when COVID first started. I was literally men, just about to ask you that. I was going to ask you if you had a statistic on that. I was going to yeah. ask. But. Men are likely three times more likely to commit suicide than women. He said something earlier. He said, I had the thought and I attempted it. Women will uh, think thoughts. I'm, I'm, I don't, maybe I want to kill. Maybe I want to do this, but they're not going to do it. Usually men, they're going to go through with it. Statistically mm -hmm. proven men will, because we suffer in silence. We feel like we're all alone. Oh like my gosh. it is real. <laughs> so then the way I want, I really want to ask you guys to help me in closing out this segment, because I just feel like this is not, we haven't even really touched on all of the things that y'all deal with. So can you guys take some time and as men, maybe kind of push a call to action on men to admit like, Hey, I'm not okay. And I need help. And you know, let them know that it's okay because it's worked out for you guys. Yeah, it is. I'll, let, it is. I'll let Calvin go first. <laughs> thank, th thank you. No, I, and like I said, I'm not a therapist, right? But it is okay. And something that I've learned about myself is that I was a rare breed of a, as a young boy and as a young teenager and as a young man and as a man that I am today and as a father, I was a rare breed. I've always been in tune with my emotions and it's okay. I was always told that, uh, uh, you know, they, if, if you're that young guy that has those emotions and you're in tune with your emotions more than normal or what society tells you that you are, it's okay. You know, and I'm glad that I was able to communicate finally and open up and, uh, find yourself. And when you find yourself, turn it into a passion of yours or integrate it because find your voice. And that was what was important for me because finding my voice brought Hear My Cry, my book. And so, you know what? How can I use myself and use my own story and use my passions, something that I'm good at, to help others if I'm not a therapist? Well, fine, I'm gonna write a book about it. And then I'm gonna follow it up with something and I'm gonna keep hitting you guys at the personal moment. You know, I'm going to hit you at the personal. I'm going to hit you where you don't want to talk about it. I'm going to expose it. And instead of exposing you, I'm just going to expose myself. So if you get my book in your hands or you hear this podcast and you hear it, the conviction in my voice and you just need to go on your own in a private area and say, man, this guy touched me and I don't have nowhere else to go. That's OK. But I want young men to know out there that it's OK to feel and be emotional and, 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 and accept that part about yourself and and explore it because it will make you a better father it'll make you a better man and it'll make you a better friend uh on so many levels and i i push it and it's okay to ask for help there is no way we got to this world that we have today without asking for help or without people helping each other even if you were forced into a predicament you had to help Help is there. Nobody gets anywhere by themselves, even if they did the hard work. Help is okay. And young men, young black men, everybody, it's okay. But specifically for black men, I'm going to tell you I love you. 
Yeah. I'm going to tell you that I receive you. And if you're watching this right now, I love you because that's something that wasn't big hearing it from a man to a boy or boy to boy or man to man, friend to friend. And that's why I'm the weird one out of all my male friends. Cause I'm the one that after every call, Hey man, I love you. I love you. And, and where it started, I would get teased and you know, Cal was the baby, the emotional one of the click. But now years later, I love you too, bro. I get that back. So it started somewhere. So for those that aren't used to it and you hear this podcast, I love you too. And you should start, you know, each one, teach one, pass it on. I love you. That's what's up. I like that. That's dope. That's dope. Call of action for me, right? I think Calvin said a mouthful, but the first thing I would tell men to do is be honest with yourself. That's the first call of action. Be honest about how you truly feel what's really going on with you outside of anger because anger is just a masking emotion that's protecting what you really feel and embrace that. A lot of times we grow up, like you said, as black men, and this applies to all men, but I can speak from, you know, the demographic of black men because I'm a black man. We're, you don't want to be considered sensitive. You don't want to be considered, you know, share vulnerabilities because sensitivity equates to weakness. Listen, God made you sensitive on purpose. Because through that sensitivity, you can feel, recognize, and feel him. So that's a good thing that you have. But because of society, we've completely pushed it to the background, right? And so embrace that sensitivity that you have. Um, and then when you get to that point where you're like, okay, I'm not okay, have the courage to speak up and say, hey, listen, I need some help. And embrace every, again, I can't say this enough, embrace everything about you. Because those experiences that you had, yes, they were tough, but guess what? They weren't meant to break you. They weren't meant to destroy you. They weren't meant to um, kind of write your story. And that's the end of it. That's not your story. That's just a part of who you are. And I like what Calvin said. Like he said, I tell, tell these guys I love them. I do the same thing. I tell guys I love them. And a lot of times guys are kind of like, man, you the, you the sense that's because it makes them uncomfortable because they don't know how to receive love. Men don't know how to do that. And so framing and, and this is a shout out to fathers, mentors, everything. Right. When you have boys, even girls, it's so important that you frame their lives young. The man's job is to frame that life. The women is supposed to put what's in that frame. If you have no frame, you have no picture. Yeah. And so, men, listen, I know that, you know, you might not have got the affirmation that you needed young. You might struggle with validation. You might struggle with all of these things. But trust me, there's another side to this. There's a better story. And I would encourage you all to get the help that you need. It's OK. Trust me, it is. I still get help today and I'm a therapist. Yeah. Therapist needs a therapist because there's moments in my own life where it gets heavy. I'm not Superman. It's okay to be Clark Kent sometime. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with that. Yes. I like that. I like that. And I really just love this conversation with you guys in general because hearing this, you know, I have a two year old son, I have, or he almost two, and a six year old. And there's hearing you guys say these things. I can now vividly hear a couple of things that my son didn't probably didn't have the words for, but was like letting me know he was needing something from me. 
And so now I feel like I, I feel a little bit more challenged to leave more space for him to be able to be that vulnerable. So I'm really appreciative of you guys sharing this because even myself going through therapy, I, I intentionally try to leave room for my kids, but this opened my eyes that sometimes you guys don't speak the same way that we do. Mm -hmm. um, and just to give you an example, my son will say, uh, like he'll see me doing a lot of things with the baby, right? And he'll say, well, you did, I haven't seen you do that with me lately, you know? And that's basically kind of him letting me know he's needing something more for me. Yeah. And I'm realizing that I'll kind of like sometimes maybe shut that out. Like, okay, well, I did that for you before, but I'm doing that with him now. Mm -hmm. And it's like, go ahead with what you're going to say. Oh, I don't want to prolong it, but you, it's good that you recognize that because he is saying to you, mommy, I, I want that same attention. I want that same affection or whatever it is you're giving the baby. And what, Another piece of that, what we don't realize is, let's just say you you shut him out and you didn't do that intentionally. You're just like, hey, I'm just into the baby right now. Yeah, That's a seed that could be planted. And the more he experiences that in different situations, it'll grow. And it'll even, it could potentially even cause division between your kids, right? Mm -hmm. Without you even realizing that, yeah. right? It's not his fault the baby but if i see it through that filter because here it is my younger sibling could, was potentially taking away something that i needed too you know what i'm saying and let me ask you is he the oldest or the middle he's the middle so that's even perfect right yeah i'm a middle kid right middle kids and it's just scientifically statistically proven they tend to kind of get left kind of by the wayside and i'm gonna tell you why you got the oldest who's the firstborn right and so it's a lot of trial and error that baby gets everything that middle one is just kind of like they're the glue but they figure it out and they take care of themselves emotionally and so it's easy to forget that when you have and listen we have two kids you've met my kids katie yeah. uh -huh. erica and i are very intentional about balancing our time um the affection we give like there's no partiality because she's a girl because guess what even though bryce is becoming a man i still kiss my baby still love my baby i tell him i love him multiple times throughout the day i show affection to him because sometimes we think too because boys get older they don't need all of that yes they do Fact. they need it they Fact. need it they need it more as men than they did as kids wow so I didn't mean to get on my soapbox, but I'm telling no, you, I'm glad, no, that was good. It's, that. It's, it's layered and, and it's, and it's good that you hear that because you're right. It's, it's a cue, a subtle cue, like mommy, I need something. So even if you can't do it, then circle back to it and say, baby, what did you need? What did you need from mommy? Sometimes it's just, I wanted a hug or I just wanted some of your time or you just acknowledging that. Wow. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for that. That's gonna. I feel like that's gonna help me step it up. And it's it, it, it's not even something major. It's just like you said. Circle back later. Mm -hmm. Um. So for those who are watching, how do they get in contact with both of you if they want to reach out? They're looking for a therapist. If they have questions about your book, how do they contact you guys? You can go ahead. All right. So well, for me, I'm on all social media platforms. So you can find me on Facebook, Deontay Miller. On 
just my name on Instagram, Deontay at Deontay J. Miller. Um, as far as, as a therapist, right? So I officially begin practicing again, kind of summertime of this year. So more realistically, June, July of this year, because I completed my master's, my internship and did all that stuff. So now it's the transitioning part. So um, I'll be open for business, as you would say, kind of June, July-ish or whatnot. And then I'll have some more information to follow then. But for now, if you need me, I'm on all social media platforms, man. And and I'm here again. I advocate for my bros, man. Trust me. Advocate for us. Yeah, that's (laughs) great. My my sisters too, but it's (laughs) (laughs) advocate for my bros, man. Um, so on mine, on social media platforms is Saint Lyrics. Um, so Saint period lyrics with a Z at the end. Um, and then on Facebook, you could just type in Calvin Ockletree. Um, and shout out to my publisher. She's here with us now too, because she's, uh, pushing me to say, Hey, you need to be back on your media because I tend to take media breaks, but my publisher said it's time. You need to come back. So you need to come back. Um, and why I have that that floor, I want to thank both of you because, uh, and Kitty, I'll start with you because uh, you've been rocking with me now for some years now. It's actually years, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, thank you for being uh, a pillar um, in my community of, with, of what, how I've lived my life and making me follow my dream uh, with becoming an author. Um, and then of course, uh, what a lot of people may not know, uh, Deontay Miller here wrote my forward for my book, uh, thoughts of suicide that's releasing later this year. And I wanted to publicly thank him and say, thank you because bro, like again, reading your words and I'm like, maybe this person's not going to understand me because I'm a different type of writer. Um, uh, but then you, you, you wrote it and I'm just like, okay, he, he read me. Okay. All right. Yeah. Like he got me, like, you know, my brother got me, you know, uh, and pushing, uh, black authors, black publishers, black poets, black writers, um, black therapists, um, you know, and you know, everything black, <laughs> you know, like just letting it know that we have everything you we need within our own community is vital yeah Yeah. and and because you we understand ourselves and i want to make sure that's understood so thank both of you uh humbly thank you so much man it's a pleasure i feel like your story is just so impactful because Mm -hmm. even from hear my cry and all of your vulnerability it just literally just you get sucked into that world for a moment that's why we had to put we try to put it in there a few times. We're not trying to glorify suicide because the way you write, it could almost come off that way. It's just because yeah. you're so vulnerable. You yeah. paint things in such a beautiful way, even when it's an ugly topic. Um, and so I'm just excited to be a part of the process because I really feel like your words and your vulnerability have definitely the power to get somebody to look at it and say, okay, I need to have some more uncomfortable conversations and I'm not alone in how I feel. So thank you guys for joining me today. And uh, Thoughts of Suicide is going to be released September 11th of this year. So make sure y'all check it out. We're going to have a forward by a Black male therapist, beautiful poetry uh, by a Black man who's experiencing real life stories and putting that into poetry so that you can know you're not alone in what you feel. 
So yes. thank you guys for tuning in. Make sure you guys support Deontay and Calvin. And see you guys next week. <laughs>